I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Media Confidential, the new weekly podcast from Prospect Magazine. I'm Alan Rusbridger. And I'm Lionel Barber. We take you inside the hugely important world of media to analyse who and what drives it. What do they get right and what do they get wrong? Today, Media Confidential focuses on Rupert Murdoch, a man who's driven some of the world's key media organisations for decades. We've both had dealings with this Australian billionaire and we'll tell you some of those tales later in the episode. Murdoch has announced he'll become Chairman Emeritus of Fox and News Corp handing control of the two corporations to his eldest son, Lachlan. But what does that mean for media and politics in the US, the UK and Australia? We'll analyse that, reflect on Rupert's career and legacy, and also consider whether the Murdoch family succession, we had to get that reference in, is now done and dusted. And we've got not one, but two great guests, don't we? Yeah, not bad to start a new podcast with a Prime Minister as your first interview. And earlier today, I spoke to the former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, who has strong opinions about the impact of his countrymen. His legacy is a very dark one. He has, in my view, done more to damage American democracy than any other individual alive today. That's pretty strong stuff, and we're going to hear more from Malcolm Turnbull in a few minutes' time. He's got very strong views about Murdoch's influence on Brexit, on Trump, on Iraq, and climate change. We'll also hear from the American journalist and author Michael Wolfe, who, after three books about Donald Trump, has returned to the subject of Rupert Murdoch for his latest. It's called The Fall, the end of Fox News and the Murdoch dynasty. So, Lionel, in case people don't know our CVs off by heart, shall we reintroduce ourselves? I'm Lionel Barber. I worked for 35 years at the Financial Times, 14 years as editor, where I led the digital transformation of the FT. And do you want to confess your um, working relationship with Rupert Murdoch as well? We'll get all our skeletons out on the table. I can hear them tumbling on now. Uh, yes, I did indeed work for Rupert Murdoch for almost four years in the early 1980s uh, as a business reporter at the Sunday Times. And lived to tell the tale. And I'm Alan Rusbridger, and I edit Prospect magazine. Uh, and for 20 years, I edited The Guardian. So that's why you can expect plenty of insider analysis from Alan and I. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to Media Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on... I still can't say this, on, on X, uh, or what the, the rest of the world calls Twitter. Find us there, at MediaConfPod. That's a terrible name, but you'll get used to it. Now, that big announcement from Rupert Murdoch came after another huge media story in the UK, prompted by investigations by two of Murdoch's newspapers, The Times and Sunday Times, alongside Channel 4's Dispatches programme. He's grabbing at my 
my underwear, pulling it to the side. I'm telling him to get off me, and he won't get off. Like holding me up against the wall, pushing himself in me. Brand faces allegations including rape and sexual assault, all of which he denies, saying his relationships have, quotes, been always consensual, quotes. Brand's career morphed from comedy, TV and films into high-profile commentary on politics and society. More recently, Brand has built a large online audience, posting videos often about conspiracy theories. The corporatist state and global media war against free speech is in full swing. This one, this one, one of these stories, uh, Lionel, which is broken in the media, and I have to say it was great reporting from The Times, The Sunday Times uh, and Channel 4. Um, but it's in a sense, uh, it's a sort of meta story about the media because Brand has morphed from being a, a, a big character on mainstream media um, and lots of people are questioning his behavior on the BBC and whether uh, the BBC did enough about it at the time. But of course, he's now a, a, a megastar on, what do we call it, on alternative media, on, on YouTube and Rumble. And I was reading the comments underneath uh, his his videos there. And I had to say, his following, which is anywhere between six and 10 million, they're not buying it. They, they, he's in a way groomed them to believe that the the attacks on him are orchestrated. But I don't think they need much grooming. They think this is mainstream media, stroke Bill Gates, stroke lizard men, stroke George Soros, stroke Anthony Fauci. I mean, all all the people, the Davos Brigade, they say this is what happens when you attack somebody. And so I'm, I'm guessing his six million supporters are going to take a lot of convincing because they live in an alternative world. Yeah, it's a story in two parts, in my view. Um, the first is really about celebrity culture. And he was a TV celebrity, he had a large audience then. And frankly, I think he was indulged, particularly by the BBC. I mean, anyone, and I know this is a family podcast, but who urinates in a cup in the studio. I mean, what was the producer doing? Why did that not go up the line? He wasn't kept in check. They didn't know how to handle him. He got away with a lot. And then when he finally did move on, he rather cleverly invented himself as a as an alternative voice in a world which by this time, and where we're talking in the teens, uh, slightly pre-Donald Trump, in a world where we have alternative facts. Now, there's always been rumour, conspiracy, newspapers often reported that. But the difference with, with Russell Brand, as you say, is he's made a real a living, a fortune out of peddling alternative facts and conspiracy theory, particularly about COVID, vaccination, etc. You can see people wondering what to do about this. Um, there was a slightly embarrassing letter written by the chair of the Culture, Media and Sport Committee, Dame Caroline Dynage to uh, YouTube and Rumble, which was kind of trying to put the heavy uh, arm on them, trying to uh, suggest that they should demonetize, cut off any attempts that Brand could have to monetize. And she got the brush off in pretty firm order from certainly from Rumble. Uh, and it was a rather good column, I thought, by Hugo Rifkin in The Times this morning saying, Actually, if we're liberals, we have to believe in free speech. He's not been accused. He's not been arrested. He's not been uh, charged with anything yet. And so, trying to cut off his uh, support is not very liberal. And I think there's another point about uh, these six million plus people, which is, uh, I think, 
we have to sort of understand why it is that they don't believe in mainstream media. They don't believe in the facts that we believe in. And for years, liberal media were lectured about how we didn't understand Trump. Uh, and Trump took us completely by surprise. And I, th I kind of think that the same is true of, of brand supporters. It's not enough to condemn them. What is it that has driven them into this parallel universe of reality? Well, a confession here, Alan. Uh, when I was editing the Financial Times, frankly, we missed Brexit. We missed a whole swathe of the population that basically didn't care about the economic arguments against leaving the European Union. I mean, we're now seeing these in spades. But at the time, we applied pure rational arguments when actually there were irrational, important uh, other arguments, fears of people about immigration, etc. And I think we should have done a better job. Obviously, after that result, we did to change the way we were reporting, put more people out of London, etc. I think there's another point about the brand case, just to kind of wrap up here, is I think the Sunday Times and the Times Channel 4 dispatches did a great job in persuading these. We obviously recognize that Brand denies all allegations, but still a number of women claim they were assaulted, sexual assault. This has been the shoe waiting to drop for a long time. However, it makes me somewhat uneasy to see Brand being tried in the court of public opinion. These women, apart from one, have been anonymous. They didn't go through to the police. They didn't. Brand will struggle to have a fair case in court. So I think there's some quite difficult questions for editors about when to grant anonymity and how to deal with these kind of uh, allegations. Now, there is a Murdoch link here. Um, and I think it's, it's a case that shows Murdoch has the good, the bad and the ugly. The, you know, the good bit is the, the great work by the Times and Sunday Times in, in, in uh, unearthing this story. Uh, the bad bit is we now forget that The Sun three times, if not more, nominated Russell Brand Shagger of the Year. It was a kind of sort of joke uh, about Brand and his relationships with women. And the ugly bit, of course, is is Fox News and Dominion uh, will come on to that. The, 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 the lies, the knowing lies that the, uh, the Fox News told. And so when you ask... Why, why, why is it that these six million people distrust mainstream media? Well, um, Rupert Murdoch is part of that story as well as being the person who owned the, the, the Times and the Sunday Times. So it's one of the reasons why Rupert Murdoch is such a complex and uh, absorbing figure. Brilliant segue, Alan, to uh, the big announcement. Breaking news, and that is that media tycoon Rupert Murdoch has announced he's going to be stepping down as chairman of Fox and News Corp. Rupert Murdoch, 92, he's handed control of Fox and News Corp to his eldest son, Lachlan. And this is a move that could have very serious implications for media and politics around the world. Are we going to call him Lachlan or Lachlan? Well, it depends what part of Scotland you come from. <laughs> I'm telling you. No, I, I'm, I'm sure I, you're I'll, right. I, I'll go for Lachlan, I, I, even though I said Lachlan I, I, the other I, day. When I, when I interviewed um, Malcolm Turnbull, I called him Lachlan, but he corrected me to Lachlan. Anyway, um, are we going to agree on Lachlan? I hate to disagree with you on anything, as you know, Lionel. I think we'll, we'll, we'll go with Lachlan. Well, so I suppose the big question is, oh, why does it matter? And I, I think, in a way, and we're, we're going to hear Malcolm Turnbull in, in, in a minute, but um, you've heard Nigel Farage saying, you know, Brexit it really wouldn't have happened without Murdoch. 
Uh, I think Kelvin McKenzie is on record. I think Paul Dacre is on record uh, before the Leveson inquiry of, of saying that Iraq would never have happened. The invasion of Iraq would never have happened uh, without Rupert Murdoch. So there's Brexit, Iraq. Donald Trump arguably wouldn't have happened without Rupert Murdoch. And Turnbull certainly makes the case that we would have got on with climate change much quicker. So I think that's the significance of Murdoch, that he has been such a player with influence on three continents. He loves getting close to power. He's actually about power more than, if you like, policy or party politics. He loves gossip. He's very good at manipulating people. But I want to just pick up on something which is, I think, a really important part of his legacy. And this is his record as an entrepreneur and a risk taker and a businessman. Frankly, you and I wouldn't have become editors or at least our newspapers would have been in a lot more trouble had Rupert Murdoch not taken on the trade unions in the 1980s and ushered in a new era of printing digitally, reducing the number of people involved in the production of newspapers. I mean, these were people, the trade unions were saboteurs. A lot of the time through the 70s and early 80s, I was on out on the street when I was on the Sunday Times. I mean, it was impossible to produce a newspaper. So I think that move to Wapping was very, very important. He also changed the face of British television with the launch of Sky, B Sky B, as a satellite TV broadcaster. Admittedly, this was all about anti-BBC, but it was also creating competition, choice, etc. So I think his legacy in that respect, and um, we'll come on to Fox, the launch of Fox TV in America, is really a very healthy one. It's what happened in the last few years where things went bad. I agree with you. I mean, probably for our younger listeners, we, we just have to uh, explain what whopping, this shorthand whopping means. And it, I think it's hard to understand how what what kind of stranglehold the the print unions had when we knew that you could produce uh, newspapers much more cheaply using computers and it was simply impossible up to 1986 i think whopping was when without anybody knowing rupert murdoch had built a a printing plant and a newsroom in in Wapping. And one Friday evening, uh, the staff on all these papers were told not to turn up uh, uh, where they were working, but to turn up at Wapping. And there was a a huge, I think it went on for nearly a year, with pitch battles uh, as the, the printing unions who knew that really this spelt the end for them tried to prevent this from happening. And I think in hindsight... Um, you have to hand it to Murdoch that uh, somebody had to take that kind of stand. Uh, you know, we had a clue uh, one lunch at the Sunday Times in 1984 where I was probably the last little seat at the end of the table. But anyway, the senior editors and Rupert Murdoch um, asked two questions. One was, who do you think is going to win? Is it Walter Mondale or Ronald Reagan? And one senior Sunday Times editor very foolishly said Walter Mondale. Uh, couldn't get much wronger than that. And the other question he asked was why can't the sunday times be as big as the new york times on a sunday i want a big newspaper just slamming down on the porch and somebody said we can only produce 64 pages maximum 72 and he looked and he said well we've got to change that and that was the hint so I wanted to get a reaction from somebody who's known Rupert Murdoch for decades, who's dealt with him, his media titles, who's been a politician at the receiving end of some of Murdoch's titles abuse at the highest levels of public life. And so this morning I spoke to Malcolm Turnbull. He was Australia's Prime Minister 
from 2015 to 2018, and I started by asking him what he thought his fellow Aussies' legacy would be. Alan, in the in the business pages, he'll be remembered as the young man who inherited a small newspaper in Adelaide and built it up into a global media empire. And he has is certainly the most influential Australian businessman on the world stage. But that heroic achievement aside, his legacy is a very dark one. He has, in my view, done more to damage American democracy than any other individual alive today. Uh, he's done enormous damage to politics in this country and indeed in yours in the UK. But it's perhaps in the United States where his impact has been most deadly. And that is by, you know, building up a, a media group, uh, in particular Fox News, whose business model is to create a climate of anger, resentment, division. Uh, it's really angertainment. Uh, it's been a compelling one and obviously successful commercially, but it's left America more divided than it's ever been, at least since the Civil War. Now, he's not alone in that increasingly crazy right-wing sort of media ecosystem, but he's by far the biggest player and the most influential. We might just come back to America, but in, in Australia, you, you mentioned that he was hugely successful in building up a, an enormous empire, and I think he ends ended up owning 70% of the Australian press. What was the impact on Australian democracy? How, how did he use that power? Well, he is a political player. I mean, News Corporation is a very potent political player. He has, over the years I've known him, which is nearly 50 years, has gone from being, I would say, centre-right to increasingly, you know, far-right. He's adopted a sort of populist political stance, which he, I mean, just completely disingenuously portrays as being anti-elitist. I mean, the idea that Rupert Murdoch is anything other than the, you know, platinum member of the elite is ludicrous. But so he gaslights people talking about standing up for the little man and being anti-elitist. But the issues on which he has faced so much political force have been ones that are profoundly destructive. And, you know, whether that is embracing, you know, Donald Trump in the United States and indeed spreading the, the stolen election lie, which created the environment that enabled January 6 to happen, or in Australia, as in everywhere in where he operates, being the loudest and most influential voice seeking to deny the reality of global warming and delay or obstruct uh, actions taken to address it. Um, you rose to be Prime Minister. When you're operating at those levels in, in politics, do you feel pressure on you to bow your policies to the things that he wants? You certainly have to recognise that he is a player. And when I say he, I mean his organisation. I mean, he's created it in his image. And Rupert, as you know, doesn't need to tell his editors what to do every day because... That you know, they know what to do. There's a company line which they fall in with. You know, the every politician has to take into account the likely reaction of the media and the Murdoch media empire in Australia is the largest, although I think its influence overall has diminished. But, and this is a parallel with the United States, 
its influence over the centre-right and right-wing of politics has increased. So the right-wing of politics increasingly is operating in a media ecosystem, the largest component of which in Australia is the Murdoch media, and that includes his newspapers and in particular Sky News, which in Australia is wholly owned by Rupert and is... um, really a local version of Fox. So your people who have followed you <clears throat> into into Australian politics <clears throat> feel that they have to keep him on board. I mean it, it's a it's a present and active element in well, Australian you, politics. It's I mean I think you you you've got to be alert to that. I mean it is the you know Murdoch media is quite capable of running vendettas against individual politicians as you've seen right around the world. And they certainly, you know, regularly campaigned against me very personally because I wasn't uh, satisfactorily deferential or right-wing, I guess. But I've seen plenty of other examples too. So they do intimidate politicians, but you know we we have the advantage in Australia of having a national you know, public broadcaster, the ABC, like the BBC. And we also have compulsory voting and preferential voting, which means our politics tends to operate more at the centre. Where Murdoch's voice was most influential politically during my time as a leader of the centre-right party and Prime Minister was with my colleagues and with the sort of members and rusted-on supporters of the centre-right party, the Liberal Party, which, is, as you know, is effectively the equivalent of the Conservative Party in Australia. You must know Lachlan Murdoch, uh, who's now the the heir and successor. Would you imagine that things will be very different under him or more of the same? No, I don't think so. I mean, Lachlan, in in my experience and observation over many decades is, um, well, when I say many decades, probably over 30 years, is that he is more ideological than his father. You know, you can see that. I mean, one of his first decisions was to appoint Tony Abbott to the board of Fox. Now, you know, Abbott's not there because of any business or corporate or financial experience. He's there because he is a absolutely hard-right culture warrior and close to Lachlan. You know, he is not an Australian equivalent of Paul Ryan, who's also on the Fox board, who's the former Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives. You know, Tony's a fan of Victor Orban. He's uh, famous for saying the science of climate change has settled as crap. And, you know, he's just, I mean, he, he is, he's right out there on the right. Very much so. Despite that, do you think that the, the overall influence of newspapers and what they think and how they report the news <clears throat> is declining in an environment in, in which people have got much more choice in, in how they get their news? It, it is and it isn't. The influence of newspapers as a form, as a format, is obviously declined. But, uh, you know, newspapers are not all on paper, as you know very well. You know, The Guardian in Australia has been very, very successful and it's it's been digital from the outset, so there's no you can't buy a paper copy of the Australian edition of the Guardian, even if you wanted to. You know, in the increasingly self-directed media stew, of which a large part is social media, the voices of curated media, mainstream media, remain very, very influential. Essentially, the the model, the Fox model, which Sky News operates with here is one that is basically designed the business model is to rile people up uh to make them angry and to you know turn people against 
each other. I mean, it's uh, this is and this this drives ratings and. You know, Rupert would say, well, it's not, that's just an incidental consequence of what turns out to be a very winning formula. But he's got to take responsibility for the consequences of his actions. And, you know, the, there are very few people, uh, particularly in the US, that would not say that Fox's impact on American politics has been quite toxic. And of course, it's created an environment that has seen the increasing polarisation of politics, and uh, that's done enormous damage. Final question. There's been talk, and I think you're an active supporter of, a a royal commission into the power Mm. of Murdoch. Is is that going to go anywhere? It needs, obviously, the government to, federal government to do it, and the the Labor government is, uh, seems very reluctant to do so. They obviously don't want to pick a fight foot with him. But I think it is important that Murdoch and these media group are held to account politically and, of course, that means by other media. You know, there was a tendency for, as you know, for the media to lay off each other, a bit of a keep-off-the-grass approach. But News Corporation is a political, and Fox, are political organisations. I mean, they are as political an operation, if not more so, than any of the political parties. They wield enormous political power. They they should be subject to considerable scrutiny. But, of course, they're quite unaccountable. I mean, the Murdochs very rarely give interviews to anyone except their own journalists, and even that very rarely. It is extremely unaccountable power, and it's been exercised in a way that, on any view, well, just about any view, has done enormous damage. I mean, it should be a matter of real public concern that an organisation with a track record like that wields so much influence. So that was uh, Malcolm Turnbull, always interesting. And as I say, as somebody who's been at the receiving end of quite a lot of um, abuse from Murdoch's titles, although, you know, we have to remember um, Turnbull is, in British terms, a conservative. He's a, he's a, uh, centre-right cons- conservative, and uh, as I think he, he suggests there, that um, Murdoch has moved so far to the right that centre-right politicians like Turnbull no longer curry favour. Well, I'm very interested in the way Rupert Murdoch constantly talks about being anti-elitist. <laughs> um, I mean, his father was a distinguished war correspondent, First World War, Sir Keith Murdoch. Uh, he went to Oxford and Yes, he did have a Lenin bust on his mantelpiece at Worcester College. But, I mean, Rupert's pretty uh, platinum elite. Uh, so where does this come from? Well, I, I think I think it is a bit of the kind of Aussie outsider. He doesn't like the establishment. I always remember when I did a book on Reuters and he actually kindly agreed to two interviews and I asked him about the two proprietors of Fleet Street. Well, one was Lord Rothermere, the other Lord Hartwell at the Daily Telegraph. And without hesitation, he said, the worst form of jumped up English aristocrats. And that came from the heart. I have a feeling, this is, I have no evidence of this at all, this is just supposition that, that um, his, I, I mean, I, on some level, I think Murdoch hates this country. And I suspect that was Oxford. He came here in the 1950s as a sort of raw... Uh, Australian and I can imagine he was patronised and looked down on and sneered at by toffee-nosed Oxford undergraduates 
and he just had a, a, a sort of visceral loathing of the English establishment ever since. He, I don't think he's any big fan of the royal family. And I, I think I mean, you'd have to get him on the couch, obviously, and uh, get a good psychoanalyst to uh, confirm my uh, suspicion. But that's where that's, I suspect, is where it all came from. And what better way to get your revenge against the establishment than first to buy the news of the world, the news of the screws, the most salacious newspaper in, in Britain, the, the Sunday, now defunct, and then the other to transform the sun into a top-selling uh, tabloid because the sun was going nowhere when in the 1960s. Uh, and then, of course, he did launch, uh, I was talking about this earlier, satellite broadcasting uh, in the UK and took on the BBC. Now, he really does think that the BBC and his newspapers have said the same throughout the years, you know, the, the worst form of jumped-up, liberal, self-satisfied, smug establishment. He's not entirely wrong about that, but he's also uh, doesn't recognise, I think, the important role of public broadcasting in this country. There's a fascinating pattern to what he does on three continents. He, he has a tabloid in each continent, uh, in Australia, more than one tabloid, and then he has the Times, the Australian, the Wall Street Journal, the sort of posh paper, which gives him the credibility and opens the doors for him. And then he has the money-making bit, which is the TV station. And there's a nice phrase in the Michael Wolff book uh, where he talks about the tabloids as the dirt business, getting dirt on people. And for 40, 50, nearly 60 years, Murdoch's papers have been getting the dirt, some of it through criminal means. And that has given him amazing power so that he he dines at the high, highest tables and he has um, he shakes uh, the prime minister's hands and prime ministers believe that they can't get elected without him but at the at the, at the bottom of it all is the dirt business well footnote to history here alan i mean he did have a tilt at the financial times in to the late 80s I didn't know He that. started buying some shares. And, of course, in those days, the Financial Times was owned by Pearson, famous for Madame Tussauds and Chateau Latour wine, very much the premium brands. And he he wanted to get his hands on the Financial Times. And the, we were poor. I was in Washington at the time, but we managed to um, escape his clutches. So for the next 20 years, essentially, he thought the one newspaper I want to buy in the world is the Wall Street Journal, which he finally did in 2007 or so, and for five and a half billion dollars. And fortunately, he decided to use the Wall Street Journal to batter the New York Times, that complacent, smug, establishment, liberal newspaper in New York. Uh, and he didn't train his guns on the FT as a global news organization, which is why I'm still sitting here today. The interesting thing, um, and again, um, it would be interesting to know what uh, Michael Wolff makes of this, but he, he's essentially he's whittled down a, a vast media empire to just two divisions now. One is Fox, and the other is he's bundled all his newspapers in Australia, the US, and the UK, plus his publishing interest, HarperCollins, into one company. I imagine that's going to be quite a difficult company. I mean, people still buy newspapers for prestige reasons. But if you're looking for that to be a, a steady earner into the future, that's quite a tough ask. I think it is. And this is why the future of Fox Broadcasting, the company that's making really all the money, is, is really at the heart of the matter. 
And I think that, and obviously we'll we'll be hearing from Michael about this, that Lachlan Murdoch, I almost said Lachlan there, (laughs) Uh, Lachlan Murdoch is probably the one most close to Rupert and his political views. I mean, he's definitely a conservative, um, fairly uppercase C, and he wanted to put his person, finally decided after years of playing around with the succession who was going to in and out that Lachlan was the was the man to run that company. Well, of course, according to uh, Malcolm Turnbull, he's ideologically to the right of Murdoch. I mean, you could say of Murdoch that his views have been quite pliable. Uh, you know, we, we, we always remember he backed Tony Blair in 1997, whereas Lachlan Murdoch's first action on becoming CEO was to appoint Tony Abbott, and that's not for his expertise in broadcasting or, or indeed business. It's just because he's on the ideological right that at the moment holds sway in America. He'd never have backed Blair unless Blair had essentially said the Thatcher revolution remains intact. You, you've had more to do with Rupert himself than I have. I only met him once, and I have to say he was, he was, he was charming. My, my, my main experience of that organization was when we spent whatever it was, two, three, four years, um, landing that phone hacking story uh, properly. And I have to say it was a horrible organization to deal with. They twisted, they turned, they lied, they prevaricated, they attacked back. uh, And they had, you know, the the truth had to be really forced out of them. And I must say, it wasn't a pleasant experience. And phone hacking was essential to their business model, wasn't it? The tabloids. I mean, there were others involved. They were not alone in phone hacking. But as you, as the Guardian exposed, they were the really uh, the tip of the spear. They were, and and it, it kind of explained Murdoch's power because when we did that, you remember this because the FT and uh, to some extent the Independent were really the only papers who were prepared to join in and report on what, by any standards, was a a major corporate story. But I could see the look in in the eyes of MPs. Uh, even the police, do you remember the police announced an investigation and then came back later that afternoon and said, we've had the investigation, there's nothing to find here. The regulator, the press regulator, which subsequently closed because they had done such a bad job of holding them to account. Uh, this was a man people were frightened of. It's the, it goes back to the dirt business. Um, and nobody really wanted to take him on or his organization. Uh, and... That was with 40% of the, the British press at that time. In Australia, he owned 70% of the press. And it's a big warning ab- about the dangers of uh, monopoly and why in any healthy democracy you have to have a v- variety of, of not only owners uh, but also types of media. In a moment, a view from the States as we're joined by a big Murdoch watcher with a new book about the Australian and his media empire. You're with Lionel Barber and Alan Rasbridger for Media Confidential, and our very first episode has kindly been sponsored by Higginson Strategy. They're an award-winning B Corp certified communications agency with a background in media for purpose-led businesses. By only working with those that make the world a better place, they never lose focus. Whether it's fighting the tide against plastic pollution or campaigning for women's rights, Higginson Strategy creates campaigns it truly believes in that deliver global results. If you want to know more, please visit www.higginsonstrategy.com. We turn now to the American journalist and author, Michael Wolff, 
whose subject has more recently been Donald Trump in books like Fire and Fury, but who has now written for a second time about Rupert Murdoch. The new book is called The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty, and it's out just now. So, um, Michael Wolf, welcome and congratulations on a highly uh, readable book. I, I read it in more or less in one sitting. But I suppose my first question is, the timing of this book is exquisite because Rupert Murdoch has, quotes, retired. But has he really retired? His statement uh, had this curious sentence about, when I visit your countries and companies, you can expect me to see in the office late on a Friday afternoon. That reminded me very much of Logan Roy's final speech where he said, I'm going to be spending a lot of time here with you because I fucking love it here. So anyone who believes I'm getting out, please shove the fucking bunting up your ass. Do you, do you believe he's retired? No, it's preposterous. I mean, he actually, in some sense, literally can't retire except by death. He holds all the power. The votes are in his hands. He controls the board. He controls um, who sits as the CEO, Lachlan, his son, Lachlan, uh, for, in this case, or, or for the moment. And, you know, he's a, you know, a meddlesome son of a bitch. Um, so he's going to go on doing what he does. And I, I would say, really, has anything changed? Probably not. I was going to say that my theory about why he is doing this is a is a you know this is a Murdoch ploy. He doesn't want to testify in the Smartmatic two point seven billion dollar lawsuit. And we we should just explain that that's the follow up to the Dominion case. And I I don't think that this is that if you play this out this would be successful. I think that he'll have to testify unless you know unless you go into court with doctors and say he's non mentis which I don't think he would let. Even Rupert, even to avoid another billion dollars, would not let that happen. But this will delay things and help bring this to uh, settlement discussions. Michael, you have many uh, vivid character portraits in, in this book. I, I love what you write about Roger Ailes, the inspirational force behind Fox News, for example. Uh, and you you portray the brothers and, and, and sisters well, too. But there's Lachlan, the man in place. My question is, do you think he's really up to it? No, I think he's a, uh, kind of a cipher. I mean, I think he always has been, his entire career has been marked by this uh, unusual for a Murdoch ambivalence. Um, you know, he, he's, he's always running away. In, in, two, in matter of fact, in 2017, they basically made the decision that he could not run a vast, diversified multinational company and they sold off most of the the assets in fact all of the entertainment assets leaving him with this kind of rump piece during the pandemic you know he picked up one what i mean this is uh, fox news is entirely based in the u.s um but during the pandemic he picked up one night and moved his entire family to australia and then they began to say things, well, he was going to still be on the job because he would stay up all night. You know, I think that he has seen his role all along as, as being there to please his father. Um, so I don't see that as changing overnight. So why has he got the job? There's nobody else. There's nobody else named Murdoch to take this job. Um, unless Rupert wanted to give it to James, 
and that would that would mean a radical overhaul of virtually everything and also probably cutting uh the profits of fox down by two billion dollars a year to i don't know maybe you know cnn size six seven hundred million a year um would would rupert take that i'm not so sure um plus james is always yelling at rupert the youngest brother yeah yes I suppose he could have put his daughter Elizabeth in charge, which might have been the smartest move. But, um, you know, uh, she's a girl. <laughs> the book begins and ends uh, rather daringly with uh, the, the, the death notice and the obituary uh, of, of Murdoch. I mean, from your knowledge, what sort of health is he in? You, you portray him as somebody who, who increasingly finds it difficult to focus uh, you repeatedly emphasize his age. He's 92. You say that he effectively lost control of Fox. Um, what what kind of state is he in? Well, he's a 92-year-old. You know, my, my understanding is sometimes some days are pretty good, other days not so good. Uh, in other words, so I, I think all you have to do is imagine that you know, we all we've all known 92 year olds and the thing that they all have in common is that they don't run significant public companies and he runs two significant public companies so when that day happens uh you've got a company's worth about 30 billion uh with the newspaper company and the the, the the fox company what happens in the days following his death you know, there's a, a, a lot of lawyers in New York start to rack up very significant billing hours. Um, so technically what happens a- after after his death is, is his shares are divided equally among his children, all who now have equal shares, um, uh, his four oldest children. They each have a vote. Um, there's no tie-breaking mechanism and they have to agree. They, they, they hold the power to decide what's going on. Nobody else holds the power. And what happens when they can't agree? And they can't. I mean, the two brothers are implacably, almost mortally opposed to one another. Um, the, the sister Elizabeth herself is a rather successful media professional, holds a, 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 a sort of a midpoint, a, a, a less fraught point of view, but at the same time, she is is not a not a right winger, not a trumper in in any way. She has her her own issues about what Fox has become, about how that has damaged the legacy of the family. And then actually, there there's this other sub wrinkle because there are two other children, and those children do not have a what they call a political participation in the trust. They have no vote. But the trust has a fiduciary duty to them. So they're inevitably going to have lawyers. Also, remember, each of these children has $2 billion in their pocket from this, the previous sale of, of Murdoch family assets. So they can pay for a lot of lawyers. So in sum, I think you would have to say this is going to be a mess. Michael, let's turn to politics in America and the role of Fox News. I think it was Charles Krauthammer, the columnist, who said that uh, Rupert Murdoch, and by implication also Roger Ailes, discovered a niche market in American television, half the American public. I mean, this is the, the sort of silent majority, if you like, those of a conservative bent 
Um, Fox News did a brilliant job in tapping that market uh, with memorable slogans like, we report, you decide. What do you think will happen after Rupert leaves to Fox News? I think something is is already happening. Fox News is cable television, and cable television is is undergoing a you know a significant transformation from a high growth business to a low or no growth or negative growth business. Um, so, despite everything that's happening in in the Murdoch family, um, Fox is is under going to undergo a transformation. It is no longer going to be as important as it once was because it's cable television. Let's talk about Donald Trump. You've written a memorable book, Fire and Fury. I consumed that one, by the way, in twenty four hours too. What What do you think? Donald Trump's view is of Rupert Murdoch. And what do you think Rupert Murdoch's view of Donald Trump? I mean, you've got some rather choice epithets of he thinks he's an oaf and an idiot. But what what about Trump's view of Murdoch? You know, he was up until, you know, the past, you know, year and a half, two years, really after the midterm elections, Trump would would make a lot of excuses for Murdoch. I mean, he might get mad at Fox, but Murdoch was Murdoch. He was he was a billionaire. He had achieved what he had achieved. And this was, this was, um, um, uh, Trump was always very impressed by this and, um, and sort of carved out any, a, a safe space for Rupert. You could say nothing about Rupert. But then as the DeSantis bubble went on, uh, Trump was, um, became angrier and angrier and realized that it was not only Fox that was was his enemy it was rupert that was yeah. his enemy and, and rupert uh, was going to he thought that ron DeSantis, the florida governor was going to be a serious challenger for the nomination and and it, it's not just happened um michael i want to go back to an assertion you make at two points in the book which i was a little surprised by but you obviously you're, you've got different sources but you say that um rupert murdoch directed roger ailes to tilt towards hillary in the summer of 2016, because he, he essentially said, Trump's a loser. We don't want to be backing Trump. Now, I had lunch with Rupert Murdoch in June 2016 in London, and uh, I can remember him very clearly being pretty anti-Hillary. And I, I was surprised by that, that you, you claim that to be the case. Yeah, well, that's from Roger Ailes. Um, and he was pretty vivid in his description of, of this, this to me, and including saying that, um, you know, that this was really one of the few times that he had ever gotten a directive from Rupert. So I'm inclined to believe, I mean, I, you, you know, I think that probably, probably Rupert was, uh, you, you know, certainly had no love for Hillary. But in the end, you know, and remember, at this point in time, it it was inconceivable, inconceivable that Trump would 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 win, and Rupert doesn't back a loser. It, that's for sure. You don't think that um, Jerry Hall was whispering sweet nothings about Hillary in his ear? I do think she was. Yes, and I think his children were were also were also saying things. I I, I think he was surrounded by people who were. You know, you know, telling him that he couldn't, that they had to do something. This is why I find your your book so fascinating, and why Murdoch is so fascinating. That, in a sense, this is a channel, Fox News. Uh, I think you use the phrase something like it it it, it reported to its audience, uh, and 
I suppose this comes down to Murdoch's motivation. He 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 had contempt for Trump, and yet he knew that his channel had to back Trump. So in the end, was he more interested in the money, or was he more interested in the power, or what was good for us for for, for America? Well, you know, I think in the end, he's caught between a, a rock and a hard place on on this. He he is all in and has been all in for Ron DeSantis. And as that fails, he's been he's been casting about for for a new candidate, but at the same time, insisting that everybody maintain their their ratings, insisting that Fox still be number one, that from a business standpoint, the game has not changed in in the least. And that's a fairly precarious position to be in when your audience is effectively the Trump base. And when you're trying to do everything to keep Trump off off your air and then getting into the situation where Trump is refusing to come on your air. And, you know, this this week is the second debate which Trump is snubbing the Fox sponsored debate. And this is going to continue after his death, isn't it? I mean, your your chapters on on James Murdoch has this repeated phrase that Murdoch wants to uh, make Fox a force for good, and he wants to purge the toxic legacy of the Murdoch name. Uh, but if he did that, he must know that if he tried to effectively turn Fox into CNN, it would destroy the value of the business. So you've, you've got, is, is James Murdoch more interested in the money, or is he more interested about the health of the US democracy and, and what the name Murdoch means? I think the latter. Curiously, from his point of view, if you break this down, the money structurally doesn't mean that much to him because while they control the vote, the voting power of, of the company, they actually have a relatively small amount of the equity in this, in this company. So James, who remember already has $2 billion in, in his pocket, um, can take over this company, change this company, and literally, what what would he personally lose? It would he would not feel what he what he was losing. Michael, this would be an exorcism of the century to try and change Fox News into something which is more mainstream, somewhat liberal. I mean, it it just can't happen, can it? Without destroying the old entity. No, I, I I don't think it can happen. I don't think you know. In the end, I don't think his siblings will let that happen. Um, we can consider the shareholder suits that would ensue if he yeah. did that. No, I would say no. That they are going to get to the point where they're going to say our only alternative is to sell this sucker. Now I know you're not a gambling man, and I know that you artfully constructed the end of this book to leave the reader hanging as to who is actually going to come out on top. But do you have a private bet on who you think will come out? Elizabeth. Well, there we have it. I think that's a what we call an exclusive from Michael Wolf. I have a question, though, about the um, the way you've written this book, Michael. And you do, and I'm sure many have told you, you write an extraordinarily engaging way and you get right into character. You explain motivation so you feel you're you're living within the characters. On the other hand, of course, there are no footnotes. And a lot of this is as if you're a fly on the wall. And you obviously weren't in in all the meetings. So how do you get around that fact of, well, has he sort of maybe uh, shaded some of this? Um, has he let his imagination run riot? 
you, in, at some level you have to you have to trust me or you have to you have to just accept that p- other people will write other books what do you get from from this approach you get something from this approach that you would not get from another approach um uh, you know why should you trust me well i think you have to you have to read the read the book judge for yourself whether there's some internal consistency here that that makes sense whether this comports with what is happening it helps that you know i said this is the end and then rupert murdoch steps down that's a very good artistic device uh, a theatrical device the way you set it up at the beginning and the end is is there anybody who who didn't talk to you that you really regret not having in the book um yeah i actually can think of can think of one person but let me not say who that is <laughs> i'm glad you took such a long time to answer that question michael just just going back to the the answer you gave on elizabeth because um We've all watched all the episodes of Succession, and this is this is the the heart of Succession. But for uh, I, I'm your your chapter on Elizabeth says that she's politically in the same neck of the woods as James and and the the other sister Prue. Uh, you paint as somebody who's taken very little interest in the media business and will go with the whatever the other two siblings suggest. So for El- Elizabeth to to win as it were, she's got to um, repudiate James. Is that right? That she has to throw in a lot with with uh, Lachlan, who in all other respects feels the uh, antithesis of what she stands for. Yes, that's about, that's about it. Talking of succession, do they watch it? They say they don't. <laughs> and what do you suspect? How, how could they not? How could they not? <laughs> I, I say I don't read my reviews. This has been an extraordinary life. I think the implication that we pick up from your book is that his legacy has been spoilt by hanging on too long. If he had gone 15, 20 years ago, his legacy might have been different. What do you think his final legacy will be? I, I think it's and I think it's a small tragedy in its way. I think it will be Fox and Trump. You won't be able to tell the the Murdoch story without putting that in the lead and that is a kind of tragedy and it's an and a major irony um because the truth is that he never was that interested in fox you know it was a business he was happy to collect the money from but he's not a television guy he's certainly not a television programmer he's not a television executive and roger ailes was doing his thing and it was making lots of money so he could he could turn a blind eye to it and he could buy the wall street journal and think that was going to be his his legacy and i i, I think he got he got hung on this michael thank you for joining us on media confidential and good luck with the book good luck michael it's a great book thanks so much so that was michael wolf whose book about murdoch uh, comes out today um what did you make of that lana most interesting thing was how he described the the Murdoch story as something of a tragedy, and in response to your question about well, if he'd maybe stepped away fifteen years ago, and by the way, fifteen years ago he would have been seventy five, uh, then things would have been maybe slightly different. But the 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 legacy of backing Trump, giving Trump a format, calling into question the legitimacy of the election and, in effect, endorsing Trump's claims. It's done tremendous damage. 
reputational damage, but also financial damage, because that settlement with the voting system cost them eight hundred million, and, and they're still going they're to still be going in court. strong. For me, uh, I thought it was the prediction that Shiv was going to win. I mean, Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> when I put it to him, how that would happen. And, you know, the, 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 the mind games you have to play in order for Shiv to throw in her lot with um, Roman or whoever. Uh, you know, she has to really uh, make an alliance with Lachlan, whose politics she abhors. So it's going to be, you know, it's like all these things at the heart of Murdoch. Is it about politics? Is it about business? Uh, is it about money? Is it about honor? Strange word to use, but um, it's going to be... Um, yeah, as gripping as anything uh, Jesse Armstrong and their scriptwriters have um, come up with. So busy media week, but what else has been on your cultural radar, Alan? I went to see a rather remarkable opera by George Benjamin, who is one of those figures who is well known in this country. He is Sir George Benjamin, but um, but really well known in, in Europe. And he's in recent years written four operas. This was at the the small opera house in the in the Royal Opera House, the the Lindley Auditorium, um, and uh, I, I also interviewed him for Prospect, and he was really in mourning for for the state of music in this country and the, the fact that um, uh, you know starting in schools uh, and with the recent Arts Council cuts to things like the BBC Singers, BBC Orchestra, lots of little uh, groups around the country in East Anglia and Manchester. Music feels as though it's unloved by this government. Uh, meanwhile, um, Lionel, you've been moonlighting on our sister podcast. Moonlighting? Well, you know, I have a day job, but there we are. Yes, uh, I have, because I, I recently had the privilege of visiting the Bank of England to interview the governor, Andrew Bailey. We sat in his office overlooking the garden, and by the way, it was the hottest day of the year, and in our brief and frank conversation, we covered the challenges that he's faced over recent years as the nation has grappled with the cost of living crisis. And then, of course, there was that mini-budget when Liz Truss was briefly Prime Minister. And here's a clip of that meeting. Actually, there isn't a clip of that meeting because it's a strange rule around the governor of the bank. When you speak to him, you're in sort of purdy. You know stuff that you can't tell the nation because it's market-sensitive. Well, this is true, Alan, but we could have put it out earlier. But because of the publishing deadlines, we had to wait till the October issue. And that, as it happens, and here is an eloquent defence of the Bank of England, it falls in what's called the quiet period, where the MPC will deliberate on interest rate policy. the Monetary Policy Committee. Yeah, the, the Monetary Policy Committee, which is tasked with setting interest rates. And you can't have noise around that. And that's why we're, we're, we're in a quiet period. So... It'll be okay. We'll hear everything next week. Do you want? Do you want to wink? Wink at me, Lionel. Just a. Are our interest rates going up or down? Nod, nod, wink, wink. It's not a bad interview. Can't wait to hear it. Thank you for listening to Media Confidential, brought to you by Prospect and Fresh Air. If you like this podcast and would like to enjoy even more of Prospect's journalism, please visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you can take out a subscription at the moment for as little as £3 for three months. Remember to subscribe to Media Confidential wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter, X, at MediaConfPod. See you next Thursday for another episode. Yeah.